Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Yes, hello. It's Jason Louvre. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast, episode 172. My guest today is Dr. Connie Zweig, PhD, a retired psychotherapist and former executive editor at Jeremy Tarcher Publishing. She is co-author of Meeting the Shadow and Romancing the Shadow and author of the bestseller, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul. She has been practicing and teaching meditation for more than 50 years. Dr. Zweig is talking to us about her newest book, Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path, The Dance of Darkness and Light in Our Search for Awakening, an always timely subject. Here's a little bit from the back of the book. Within each of us is a spiritual longing that prompts us to unite with something greater than ourselves, to awaken to our unity with all of life. Yet, no matter the spiritual path we choose, we inevitably encounter our own shadow, those unconscious aspects of ourselves that we suppress or deny, or the shadows of our teachers and their secret desires about money, sex, and power. Meeting the shadow can derail the journey, but according to Connie Zweig, PhD, we can learn to recover from loss of faith and move from spiritual naivete to spiritual maturity. Calling on us to expand our vision of religious and spiritual life and our vision of awakening to include the human shadow, Zweig examines the yearning that sets us on the spiritual path, showing how it can lead to ecstatic, transcendent experiences or to terrible suffering by projecting it onto an authoritarian teacher, priest, or guru who abuses power. She tells the stories of renowned teachers, Sufi poet Rumi, Hindu master Ramakrishna, and Christian saint Catherine of Siena, whose lives unfolded as they followed their spiritual yearning. And she tells the cautionary tales of contemporary teachers of Buddhism, Hinduism, and Catholicism who acted out their shadows in devastating ways, leaving their followers traumatized and lost. She explains how meeting the shadow is a painful but inevitable stage on the path to a more mature spirituality. She describes how to use spiritual shadow work to separate from abusive teachers, reclaim inner spiritual authority, and heal from betrayal. With guidance for both inspired and disillusioned seekers, the author explores how to navigate the narrow path through the darkness toward the light, rekindle the flame of longing, and once again engage in fulfilling spiritual practice. All right, this was an excellent conversation. Without any further ado, please welcome Dr. Connie Zweig. (music) 
I have your I have your book here. Thanks. Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path. Um, so why don't we just open it up? If you want to tell the audience a bit about who you are, the book, and how you came to write it. Okay. So um, when I was nineteen years old, uh, I was a student at Berkeley. And we were striking to close the psychology department. This was 1969. And um, I saw this cute guy walk out of the building and I followed him and we started talking and we made this connection, but he wouldn't date me unless I started TM. So I started meditating at age 19 for no spiritual reason. And um, I noticed that it felt really good to calm my mind and quiet my nervous system. Um, and a lot of the anger, especially the political anger that I was carrying around, began to dissipate. And I became more involved with TM and eventually went off to become a teacher and spent about a decade in the TM organization teaching people how to meditate. And in the beginning, it was very kind of open and non-hierarchical. And there was a lot of um, purpose and community feeling. And then slowly, slowly, um, the teacher began to create more hierarchies, um, charge more money. Um, People, students began to lie in order to get new techniques. And then there were rumors about the teacher having sex while he was telling his students to be celibate. So um, I left. The hypocrisy was too much for me. And I decided to leave. I think it was 1979. And um, it was very painful. Uh, none of my friends would speak with me anymore. I lost my um, my faith in spiritual practice, my belief system, my sense of belonging, my sense of purpose. And so that has stayed with me over 50 years now. And, um, and I began to explore depth psychology and study Carl Jung. And um, this whole idea of the shadow really caught me. Um, I was in the, I was doing journalism, and then I was in book publishing, and I um, created a book called Meeting the Shadow, which is an anthology of um, experts on the dark side of humanity, trying to understand what Jung meant by the shadow. It's a, it's a term that he coined to refer to those parts of us that are outside of the light of awareness. And so they're in the dark. It's like they're, it's like images in a dark room that haven't been developed yet. So they could be images, feelings, behaviors, beliefs, impulses, actions that are forbidden or taboo or shamed or disapproved of when we're young. And we learn, for example, that anger is bad or that crying is bad. And we lose love and approval when we do that. And so those feelings go into the shadow. 
But there are also a lot of other things that can be repressed, such as a talent. If your family is focused only on academic achievement when you're little um, and you're really artistic, then your artistic talents and dreams can go into the shadow too. Hmm. So it's not a sort of simple popular conception that the shadow is all bad it's bad in relation to ego because in relation to the ego it's not sanctioned it's not welcomed um so when when meeting the shadow came out it was a big hit and it kind of um surprised me and i stayed with that theme during my career as i went back to graduate school to become a depth psychologist and then I published um, Romancing the Shadow, which is about my method of shadow work, primarily in relationships, um, intimate relationships, friendships, and workplace relationships. And um, I wasn't sort of consciously trying to have a career in the shadow, but it just kind of unfolded that way. Um, and then in my 60s, I was looking for material to read about aging and retirement that would include the unconscious shadow. And there was nothing. Hmm. There was no material out there from this perspective. That's interesting. And so I said to my husband one day, oh my God, I guess I have to write another book. And uh, and so I wrote The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul, which is about the shadow figures, those parts of our unconscious that um, block us from aging consciously because they either carry our ageism or our identification with old roles um, and um, body images and um, all kinds of collective social issues that really keep us from thriving and finding the treasures of the later later stage of life. So um, my, my doctoral dissertation had been about spiritual yearning, which I call holy longing. And uh, the publisher of The Inner Work of Age asked me to come out with a new edition of that, that we call Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path the dance of darkness and light in our search for awakening. So that's um, the newest book that I wanted to talk with you about. Mm -hmm. And it really, its themes stretch all the way back to my 19 year old self and the dreams of awakening, um, the dream of teaching meditation and helping people move toward enlightenment. Um, and what can happen when we meet shadows in ourselves and in our teachers and in our groups? So one thing that was really fascinating to me about your book, particularly how it's structured, is you kind of, if I'm right, structure the first half is about the yearning for, for God. And so it's almost like two awakenings. One is the spiritual awakening, and then the second is the awakening to the shadow, which seems to be an inevitable um, pattern that plays out one way or another. Maybe, do you want to talk about how you went through those stages um, in your own life? You talked a little bit about TM, but um, kind of lay out how that journey went for you. 
Um, well, I've had several other teachers. Um, I don't generally like to talk about my own lineage because, you know, people tend to imitate and my path is not anybody else's path. So um, I found, I went to India and found a teacher in the Kundalini lineage who had been a um, sannyasi. He had been a monk and wandered the streets for a long time, most of his life. And as a result, was very highly developed spiritually, but was not developed emotionally or cognitively or morally. So he would look at my husband and talk to him and never look at me. And I realized he was sexist. And he would make sort of contemptuous comments in my direction. So that kind of forced me to try to understand how can somebody be very spiritually advanced and at the same time um, not have relational skills, not have empathy, um, not have. And so that is one of the themes in the book that trying to understand how teachers who claim to be awake and in some cases are in advanced levels of consciousness, and yet are undeveloped in these other ways. And I think there are several reasons for this that I came to understand. One of them is that awakening is not global. We don't awaken all parts of us at the same time, even in high levels of consciousness. And so, um, Ken Wilber calls this lines of development. And so you could have an advanced spiritual line of development, but a very undeveloped moral character. So if you have an internalized um, conscience and spontaneous right action in your own moral development, you can act out your shadow. And there is shadow material in all of the teachers who are available today. And once I began to really research this, I was shocked at how many of them were acting out destructively, either in abuse of power or sexuality or money. And so the way I came to understand that is that their own moral development lagged behind their spiritual development or they're not really awake, right? They're not really who they say they are because they're so incongruent in their behavior. Um, and so chapter five is about how uh, the stories, it contains many, many stories of all of these teachers, um, allegations of people who have done great harm to their students and their and their communities, even though they claim to be awake. And that for me um, is a central theme that we really need to understand if we're seekers. Um, what are the shadow issues that we bring to the sacred teacher-student relationship? Um, it might be <clears throat> 
idealization and the need for the perfect parent that we didn't have. Mm -hmm. It might be a need to belong that becomes so important that we turned a blind eye to what's really happening. Um, it might just be the defense of denial. That's kind of a habit of, you know, not looking at what is making up spiritual rationalizations about it. So, for example, one of the really, you know, well-known stories in this area is Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, mm -hmm. Shambhala community in Boulder, uh, who was an alcoholic who sexually assaulted women. Um, when he died of alcoholism, people denied it. They couldn't actually accept that he was a vulnerable human being. And so they made up stories. Well, he didn't really die of alcoholism, you know, it was something else. And so that is a, those are shadow issues in the members of the community. And then maybe you know the story of what happened is the man he left as his heir continued to act out sexually and had sex with people knowing he had HIV and actually gave AIDS to some people. And, um, and then the third person who took over that community was Trungpa's son. And he continued to the, sexual, the pattern of sexual assault until he was actually forced to leave the country. So a lot of these people get away with very destructive behavior with impunity. Hmm. And they don't believe they'll be punished. They don't believe there'll be consequences. There are psychological reasons for this. Some of them are really, really narcissistic. You know, and a trait of narcissism is that I'm different, I'm special, and nothing will happen when I do these things, you know. I can walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and nobody will do anything. Right? Mm -hmm. We've heard that. So another explanation is that they're actually sociopaths and they have no conscience. And another explanation is that they just are developed in these very narrow ways and not emotionally and morally developed. And maybe all of the above is going on. Hmm. And so I really... You know, this was very disturbing and at the same time urgent for me to understand and help other people understand so that when you find a teacher and you think you fall in love and you feel devotion and you join a community, whatever it is, it could be a Christian church, it could be a shamanic community with plant medicine, it could be a Roshi and a Zendo or a swami or a, a rabbi, whatever it is, actually the same dynamics are happening across the denominations. The same projections are happening in both both ways, from the from the believer to the clergy person and from the teacher to the student, the same projections are happening. And the teachers get used to carrying the adoration and the devotion. And so they begin, like my experience, to get more and more strict and demand more obedience in order to keep that relationship dynamic static because they don't want to lose people. So, you know, there are stories in the book about um, 
where this has happened and also how some people have overcome it, how some communities have worked to really redesign the systems that collude with some of these abuses. Well, let's focus on that then. That's that's super interesting and not something that I've I've read about people working through successfully. It's kind of like I feel we only get the the stories about Trungpa or Adida or or Andrew Cohen or somebody like that. But uh, it's a very different cultural moment now, obviously. And you touch on this in the, the new preface to the book. There have been sea changes in opinions, um, and the internet has changed everything for everyone. So. Who are the people that are working through it, and how are they doing that? Well, I mean, you mentioned Andrew Cohen. There's a lot of mixed reaction to his new book and his tour to make amends with people. But he is acknowledging the harm that he caused. Yeah, how's that going, by the way? Because I did think about having him on the show, but I felt like it might still be too uh, upsetting for people. I really don't know. Yeah. I haven't seen him myself. Um, but. It seems to me he deserves to be heard because he is making these efforts. Um, and that's very unusual. Hmm. Um, so in um, the LA Zen Center, the Los Angeles Zen Center went through a big upheaval when it was discovered that the Roshi was having sex with students can't remember if that Roshi was married or celibate. I think he was probably married. Um, and um, everything started falling apart. People were very distressed. There was a lot of uh, post-traumatic stress from these revelations. People really suffering anxiety and, um, and leaving. Most people left the community. It kind of fell apart. and. Um, and after he was gone, a female Roshi came in and she redesigned the community from top to bottom. She actually changed the Zen practice from staring at the wall to sitting in a circle looking at each other. She redesigned the hierarchies to be more peer support. She taught people how to do shadow work, how to communicate. The relationships between men and women were changed. And so the system could no longer support, because the system was then based on more transparency and communication, it couldn't support the secrets anymore. And a similar process happened at Kripalu Yoga Center in Massachusetts. Okay. Where Yogi Amrit Desai. Um, was married and then was exposed as having sex with students. And he was trying to be sort of a traditional Indian yoga teacher at the time. But when people found out that there was this hypocrisy going on, um, again, the whole thing kind of blew up. And um, he first at first he denied it. And then another woman came forward and then he admitted it. And so they brought in some therapists and consultants and tried to work it through. Eventually he had to leave, but they redesigned Kripalu in a much more non-guru centered way so that it operates really differently. 
And he actually, I have some of his comments in the book. He he was interesting. I mean, he started to really learn the psychology um, that was hidden to him as an Indian, as a teacher from India, and started to understand how people's childhood needs were be, being projected onto him. And that um, his model didn't fit in the postmodern Western mainstream culture that was more about autonomy and self-expression and so on. Well, let's zero in on that issue, actually, because I think that that is critical. Because uh, it seems to me in the whole story of spirituality coming to Eastern spirituality coming to the West from the 60s and the 70s and people like Trungpa and Adidan and um, Muktananda and people like that. I think there, it seems to me, and also having been around a lot of these communities and watched the dynamic in them, there's a lot going on. And it kind of what you were just touching on is there's another issue here, which is like a clash of cultural expectations. And there's also when people go, you know, my experience of these groups is people go to them this is going to sound cynical, but it is, it is my true read. People go to them not for spiritual enlightenment, but because they're trying to fulfill unfulfilled family needs or other needs. They want to find the perfect family. And so that's automatically projected. And when you have somebody on a pedestal that you're projecting perfect, you know, perfect parent, God, all this stuff onto, and they're, of course, just a human being. And in addition to that now, and I think more now than ever, you have a whole set of cultural expectations from postmodern America of what somebody is supposed to be like, what their political beliefs should be like, what their attitude towards um, other people should be like. And those may have nothing to do with that person's culture or their tradition. So it's kind of like, well, the new traditions that are going to be born out of this are new traditions. It's super interesting, but it is a culture class, culture clash excuse me, and, and a cultural dialogue. And it seems like whatever comes out of that will be something new, but not, you know, it will be something totally new. Yeah, I think the cultural differences are key, as you're saying. So, uh, you know, there are people now who are claiming themselves to be teachers who are younger and Westerners and are not going to have those kind of issues. But the people in the generations of teachers who came from India and Tibet and Japan, um, they came, a lot of them came from monasteries. Um, a lot of them came from traditions in lineages in which they were told they were born into this position and they were special, they were chosen. And um, so they come here with a different set with a sense of entitlement, a sense of specialness, a different sense of um, what culture is about, different mores uh, that are not so much individualistic. They're more communal in many cases. I remember reading something by Yvonne Rand, who was a Zen priest, and she said, um, you know, her her Zen tradition came out of Japan. And when she put on her black robe, she could instantly feel the projection shift from her students, where if, if she didn't wear that robe, they related to her differently. You know, there's a young man, um, there was a teacher named Kali Rinpoche, who was a Tibetan Buddhist 
well-known, renowned teacher. Um, and when he died, a young man, or I guess he was a boy at the time, was chosen as the reincarnation of Kali Rinpoche. So he uses that name. And he came to the West, and he has been talking about how many of the boys in those monasteries are molested. So they are bringing their own traumas and their own wounds, sexual wounds, into these situations. And not, at, not conscious of psychology and the need to heal and repair, but acting out unconsciously their own shadow material, right? So there are many cultural differences around what we understand awakening to be and right. what's required to attain it. And that's a big issue, I think, because I think that particularly in the West, people have this idea of there's a certain politics that go along with awakening. There's a certain shopping pattern that goes along with awakening. And these are not necessarily related to anything other than people's um, values now. And so I've discovered that when people are looking to find a realized person, generally what they're looking for is somebody that shares all the same opinions as them, but is, you know, perceived to be further along. And, and that's obviously a setup for disaster. And so I'm hearing everything that you're saying about, you know, and I'm very aware of these things about, you know, people bringing over, you know, issues from monastic cultures and, and things like that. And we also have it ourselves in the Catholic church and, and all of that, but maybe to problematize that further where there's, there's just a thread that I need to pull there, which is, well, on the other hand, um, and well, let's take this out of the sexual abuse. Sexual abuse is never acceptable. Let's take it out of that for a second. But just there's a subtle kind of imperial dynamic there where it's like, well, if you go to other cultures to learn from them or you or people come from other cultures here to learn from us, but then you're essentially saying, well, they don't have the psychological resources that's been hidden to them. That sounds a little missionary. It's like they need to adopt our opinions to be okay. Well, that's the opposite. You're supposed to be going to them for to learn their stuff. But now you're demanding that they adopt our our. Uh, our spiritual tradition, which is psychology and, and its related things. So I had to pull that thread because it's a little uncomfortable. You know, it's like, well, okay. Yeah, I'm not really talking about the content of beliefs. Okay. I'm talking about levels of awareness. So if, if someone is born into a lineage and told he's the one. But that's the nature of those lineages. That's what they're that's based the nature on. of them. And then he comes here so unprepared for what's going on here um and he doesn't have he has practices for transcendence but not for self-reflection not for self-observation not for morality or ethics on our standard yeah on our so, standard so, so i kind of go say, back to what example, i was saying i kind of go back to what i was say, saying which is you're well, you're, you're demanding they example, adopt to us I'm not demanding anything. I'm exploring what it might be like to redesign the teacher-student relationship, which can be the most sacred relationship, clergy-disciple, whatever we call it in any tradition. If there were a way to redesign that with both people aware of the risks of, ask, of acting out shadow material, both people aware that there's shadow material stored in every chakra, 
in the subtle body. And so if it's stored that's in you know, the third, sorry? I mean, that's one model. Well, these are my suggestions. Okay. I mean, you can argue with them, but I'm just... you had me here for my thoughts. So, you know, so if, so if, if something happens to arouse the shadow material and it erupts from the sex chakra or the power chakra, there's going to be some kind of acting out if that person has no awareness of how to deal with that material. That's what's going to happen. I mean, one of the, you know, financial abuse, somebody told me this week that her teacher had taken a vow of poverty early in his life. And then he came here and he started out with asking people to tithe. And then he asked people for a portion of their income. And now he's asking people for um, when their families die for their estates mm -hmm. so that he can have the land. So there's this increasing financial demand from his students. So my question is, what does that say about his psychology? He might not use the word psychology, but what does that say about his, his unmet financial needs that he brings from living in a monastery to this culture in the same way that, you know, Rajneesh bought Rolls Royces and some of them buy jet planes and some of them sure. sit in lavish palaces and stuff. So if there are unresolved issues around power, sex, and money, something is going to erupt. Chances are something is going to erupt in the context of this culture clash, in the context of the um, projections that are happening. And my, you know, my book is not about beliefs. I'm not telling people what to believe about this or to stop seeking or to stop teaching because there are teachers reading it too. I'm just about to teach uh, Christian seminarians who want to understand themselves more. So what I'm suggesting is that we have a language for looking at, at this behavior. And maybe there's a way to share that language to people who are at risk of causing harm. Yeah, I think that would be that would be great. And and I think there's so much talk now about um, consent. And consent is the I mean, I think every within all of these relationships, I feel that the best is to have everything completely conscious out in the open and almost contractually consensual. Um, but I'll turn it around also. And I think that obviously if there's unresolved sex money or power issues with anyone in a position of authority, those are going to be acted out. But, um, but what it also, and what does it say about them? But also what does it say about the people that are putting themselves in that situation and who are consenting to it and agreeing to it and projecting into it? I mean, you bring up the Rajneesh, you know, most of the Rajneesh's students had graduate degrees. So I'm, I'm kind of at a loss these days to, to allow people victim status when it's like, or to buy into that when it's like, you're an adult with a graduate degree, you made all these decisions. And in many cases, um, you know, a lot of the people who come out and speak against abuse, an example would be like Mike Rinder, who left Scientology, uh, were some of the chief perpetrators of it. And so it's, it's not, sometimes it's not so simple as saying like, well, I 
you know, the bad man, you know, I met the bad man and everything became bad. Um, I think that particularly now and coming out of post-structuralism and um, related academic movements, there's such a, a better awareness of how systems perpetuate themselves uh, almost independently of the people involved with with them. And one of the things that I was thinking about as I was reading your book is, you know, maybe this is just an issue with congregationalism, period. You know, it's like outside of the the bounds of one spiritual tradition or teaching or even, even maybe the guru disciple thing. It's just, you know, when people get together and share beliefs, weird, weird things happen. I'm not sure that congregationalism is good for anybody, but I'm pretty introverted. Some people like it, you know. Um, anyways, these are thoughts that came up as I was reading your book. Yeah, there are group shadows in any group. There are dynamics that happen and that su- very subtly coerce people into groupthink. And people begin to lose parts of themselves. And so when does a healthy group become cult-like? And when does it actually become a cult? I mean, there's a whole spectrum here that's been studied and, you know, language that's been developed to try to understand that. I'm not saying that um, there's a victim-perpetrator, clear black and white framework here. I really see a lot of nuance in these situations, whether the abuse is power, sex, or money. Um, And so I agree, I don't buy that victim-perpetrator narrative. I feel that um, it's very individual. Each situation is very individual. Um, But my point is, let's try to understand why this is happening and what we can do about it. So this week I have a group of people who are, there are now um, more stories about Maharishi, the TM guy, having sex than anybody knew about. So a group of TM people invited me to try to talk about this because they're so traumatized by these stories. So this is going on now in many communities. And, you know, sometimes people will need therapy in order to decide when to separate from a teacher or a group and in order to get the support to be able to do that. Other people might become whistleblowers and get excommunicated, or they might become a whistleblower and decide to stay and try to redesign the group. That's what these TM people want to do. They want to redesign what's happening now. So there are many different um, approaches to this, and I don't want to, I'm not a black and white thinker. I'm not saying, you know, these are all bad. All these groups are bad. And the point is to get people out into uh, conventional normative society. Not what I'm saying. I think that there's a part of all of us that's longing for unity, for communion with something larger than ourselves. Today, we call it non-duality. We used to call it, you know, transcendence or unity consciousness or um, communion with the divine, our Christ nature, our Buddha nature, you know. 
So whatever language we use, I don't care. I'm not hung up in the language. I think there's a, the what the poets have called it is the soul's yearning for the beloved. And I believe that that's a part of human nature. It's not, it's not awakened in everybody. But for people who feel that, that yearning, um, they're going to seek. And they, in many cases, are going to find a, a situation that looks really good for a while and then that turns difficult. And that's just what happens because people are human. Yeah. And everyone has shadow material that they're unaware of. That's how we're made. But don't you think, um, it certainly seems to me that the, the disillusion with the group and leaving the group or the disillusion with the practice or the guru or whatever it is, don't you think that that is also kind of part of the spiritual path? You have to kind of reject uh, that person to become fully individuated, to find your own, your own orbit in, in the universe, as it were? I think for some people that's very true. The groups are transitional. And, um, you know, what in psychology, we call it separation and individuation. We do it from our families, and then maybe we do it from our friends and from our spiritual communities. I don't think it's true for everyone. I think there are some people who land in a community that works, you know, and it's supportive enough and it's conscious enough and, um, you know, they don't necessarily have to leave. So I'm not saying that everybody has to do X, Y, Z. What I am suggesting is that there are insights from depth psychology that we can draw on to recover if we have suffered real religious abuse or spiritual disillusionment or betrayal, some people call it betrayal, that there are ways to work with the projection and really reclaim lost parts of the self. And even as we do that, we might decide not to leave. It's very individual choice from my point of view. So please talk about those transpersonal tools. I think that would be super interesting to the people that are a lot of the people that are listening. Well, um, you know, you were saying on one level, we might project or unconsciously attribute to a clergy person, um, our, our perfect parent. And so, you know, this is the father I never had unconditional love and approval, you know, brilliant, compassionate, generous. Um, some of that is unconscious. It's not that we we are consciously saying that to ourselves, but that's in the attraction, just like when we fall in love. We don't always know what we're falling in love with, right? It's very much it's very in the shadow. So so there's that level of what we call personal projection or parental projection. And then there's the archetypal projection which is of the divine human, of the person we believe to be self-realized or perfected, which is bigger than a parent. It's closer to a God, right? It's closer to a, a divine human, someone who's attained um, what we really wish to attain ourselves. And so if that's the case, what are we giving away? 
from our own treasure to that person. We may be giving away our light, our spiritual light, our essence. We may be giving away our own compassion. Oh, look at how she's so hmm. compassionate. She can yeah. hug everybody in the whole world and not get <laughs> tired, right? Right. Interesting. So our own compassion then is going into the shadow hmm. and she's carrying it for us. Interesting. Right? So say I, I want to say more about what you just said. Our own compassion is going into the shadow. I assume you're talking about uh, Ama. Uh, and she's carrying it for us. It could be any teacher, but she's kind of an obvious target for that quality, right? And there are very difficult stories about her, how she treats her students that are not compassionate. I don't know firsthand if those stories are true or not, so let's call them allegations. But it's very different from the the persona that she presents to the world. So if we're, whatever we attribute to somebody else, whether it's positive or negative, like it could be, oh, that girl is such a lazy couch potato. All she does is watch TV. We don't want to look at our own laziness. It's in the shadow. And so we're putting it outside of ourselves onto somebody else. So it's the same thing with a positive trait. That man is all knowing. He knows everything there is to know. So you're giving away your own capacity for knowing. And it gets buried in your shadow because somebody else is carrying it for you. That's so important. I really, I'm glad you articulated it that way. That was very, very, um, that's the clearest I've heard it put. And I think that that is something that is not generally um, thought about because the shadow is kind of automatically carries the connotation of all your bad parts or the evil things, but it could also be positive qualities that you disown. Is that well in, a fair in the spiritual context, that's really the case. Okay. We disown a lot of our spiritual authority. So and we disown um the feelings that are not welcomed by the teacher or the community. So I remember in TM, um, somebody once said to me, how come you always have that smile on your face? And I didn't realize I was doing that. And I began to see that everyone had a similar facial expression. <laughs> because what was going into the shadow? Anger, sadness, um, helplessness. Hmm. All the stuff that we didn't want the public to see because we wanted people to meditate. And so a spiritual persona. So so you're saying that the people people become complicit in upholding the spiritual persona to spread exactly. the belief. Exactly. That's super interesting. That's super interesting. And it's very unconscious, right? This is not something I did on purpose. Mm. It's the pressure of the group or the teacher. You know, the teacher might say, um, don't pay attention to your thoughts. Your mind is empty. Just let them go through. Your thoughts aren't important. So what is the, what are the implications of that? There might be a thought of doubt. There might be a sense of danger. There might be a red flag that's being missed because you're in this habit of dismissing your mind. 
or your body. Don't pay attention to your body. Evil impulses, full of sin, right? Flesh versus spirit. So sex is bad, right? Bodily functions are bad, shameful. That's always confused me. I, I think um, and one of the things that's always confused me about the spiritual community is people's obsession with being good and being seen as good. And I have a, I come from the occult world, so we don't do the good thing. We just, we just have shadow outsider personas. But, um, but I did spend a lot of time in the the Eastern Guru community for like ten years, and um, I've never understood whether it's the Catholic Church or Eastern gurus or whoever it is, I don't understand the fixation and the hang up on like saying sex is bad, for instance, and that the body should be overcome or that the, the hang up on good and evil even. And, um, or more simply put, expecting the teacher to be some inhuman, non-human figure. And it's like, well, that's obviously not the case. And like you said, it's like, it's gonna, it's gonna, erupt badly. I never understood why are people, it's like, is, it, is that like the residue of Christianity? Why do people have that hang up where they have to see the person as a non-sexual, non-human being or what, whatever it is in the group? Well, you know, we call it splitting. Good and evil are split. And the body and the feminine and sexuality are separated and the earth are separated from mind and spirit. And that's the root of every tradition, of every... Actually, let's think. Is it every single one? It may not be every single one. It's definitely, you know, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Um, is it also true in Vedanta and Buddhism? I would say in some lineages and not in others. In the monastic lineages, it is. Right? Yeah. Women are temptresses. And um, sex will lower your kundalini and deplete you. And so um, if they have that paradigm going on, then there's that split. And it's very rooted in the collective unconscious in these groups. It's not even just an individual frame. It's rooted in the group frame. Yeah, why do you the culture, think that? What we're calling the culture. Why do you think that is? Because, I mean, you you know, that seems that that division between body, mind, and spirit, body, let's say just body and spirit, body and mind, is, you know, a pretty Western thing. And, you know, a lot of the spiritual literature kind of comes at this from a simplistic perspective and says, you know, well, the West is all about the Descartian uh, split, but the East, well, they have it all figured out. They don't have any of these issues. It's like, so, so why is that? Are they, are they um, absorbing Western hangups or are they bringing their own? Well, monastic cultures, you know, are rooted in sexism. Hmm. I mean, women are dangerous to people who are living their lives as monks. So I don't think it's only Western cultures. I think it's monastic cultures. And it's also um, biblical. And, um, you know, I think for me in the TM world, if Maharishi had said, you know, I'm human and I'm not a monk and I'm going to have sex, it wouldn't have bothered me. 
Right. I mean, that's kind of my point. He said you should be celibate because that's better for your spiritual development. And then he was acting out sexually. And it was the hypocrisy that got me. I think different people responded differently to this. But, you know, so for me, I mean, there are other teachers who are very open and disclose their sexual lives. And the transparency allows people to kind of more easily dismiss it. But then they move, they can move into assault and rape, you know, and those aggressive kinds of transgressions. I mean, then what do people do with that? So I think there's a, again, there's a scale that's not black and white. It's not, it's, it's very individual and it's very nuanced. Um, And You know, there are stories like Muktananda sleeping with young girls at the end of his life. Yeah, under under underage. Underage. Yeah. What was that? You know, what was that about? I mean, why Well he claimed it was some tantric ritual thing, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, so it's it's there's some there's a reason. Spiritual (laughs) rationalization. It's pretty ridiculous. So but there are people who are totally unbothered by it. Very close friends of mine didn't care. Um, so, you know, this is very tricky. It's very complex. Um, there are some women who marry their teachers after having a sexual relationship. We don't know what the power dynamics are in those marriages because the men continue to be teachers, you know? And so you were asking about consent. Is that consent? Can a woman really consent to sex if she feels that her spiritual well-being is in the hands of this man? So let's focus on, I think that is such a critical point where it's the, the kind of the issue with spiritual abuse is not only, it's not necessarily that an inappropriate relationship is occurring, or it's not just that, it's that the person is using the power dynamic, not only of being a guru, but saying, I'm your only route to salvation, which is batshit insane part of my language but but it happens all the time that's right it happens in every denomination and so if you believe that person is your intermediary to the divine and the only way you can be saved or wake up or have good karma or go to heaven whatever language right can you really consent I think that's very tricky. And there are a few people who say they can, and this is what they choose, and they don't feel victimized by it. And there are other people who say consent is not possible in that situation. Yeah, one, I I did an interview with a writer named Ramsey Dukes, who's from the magical, (laughs) Western magical world, but he had a, you know, he was around a lot of these groups in the 60s. And he made the point that, you know, so many of these groups, like particularly the guru groups, um, have put such a stock in trade in regressing people to younger ages, like, oh, pretend like you're five, because then your mind's not in the way. And it's like, well, you know, it's like, and he said, at, at a certain point, if people are mentally put into the state of underage people, can they consent? 
you know, it's like, is it, is it really important that the person is, is technically an adult? So I'm, I'm, I'm contraindicating what I said before. Yes, technically they're adults, but if they're kind of in this regressed state because of this charismatic leader telling them to be so, then can they consent? Very tricky. Very tricky. Yeah. No simple answers here, Jason. Well, what are the, um, so the people that are working through this, are there, have people found working models or is it kind of an ongoing conversation? Yeah. So we were talking about how to heal the projection. If the projection breaks down and, you know, we feel traumatized and disoriented and we want to do spiritual shadow work. So there's that first part about reclaiming the light. And then there's the part about reclaiming critical thinking. Begin to let your mind um, ask questions. And I remember those moments for myself. Um, it's difficult. It's really challenging. And part of it is that often people are isolated when they're in this stage. And they can't talk to other members of the community. Um, so re beginning to reclaim critical thinking can enable you to break through denial. And the same with authentic feelings. So if you've stuffed a lot of feeling for the spiritual persona, like we were talking about, maybe you've stuffed anger or sadness or loneliness, um, beginning to just allow those to arise. And it's scary. I get that. And you might need some kind of support to be able to do that. And the same thing with body sensations. If, you, if you've become cut off from your bodily knowing, your gut instinct. Um, one woman said to me, my body kept telling me it was dangerous and I didn't pay attention. She knew in her gut that it wasn't safe with this person and yet she kept dismissing it. And so, and then, you know, there's also what Carl Jung called the image of God, Imago Dei. So reclaim, beginning to reclaim our images of the divine. I remember um, when I first saw Maharishi when I was 19, and he had long hair and a long beard and a white gown. I don't know if you're probably not old enough to remember what he looked like in those days. No, I, I do because I'm, I know I've had a lot of friends in TM, so. So for me. Not, not, not firsthand, that, but yeah. That image of the yogi sitting in Lotus resonated in my psyche. I don't know why or where it came from, past life, who knows. I understand more psychologically now my attraction. But that image somehow resonated deeply in me as my future. I would be a yogi. And that's what became important in my life. I had a client who um, was doing Buddhist practice and told me that he, he believed in Buddhism. But he felt terrible guilt and shame about his sexual impulses. And he didn't know why. 
And as we started to do shadow work, we kind of uncovered his Catholic childhood. And he had an image of a sort of Pope-like figure shaking a finger at him, telling him he was bad. But if he hadn't really uncovered that, he would have stayed with, you know, the Buddhist concepts and not really experienced what was what was in his own psyche that was causing him this suffering. So uncovering our images of the divine is part of the recovery process for me. Hmm. And so there are all these kind of different layers of it. Um, I've been organizing free online groups for people who want to read the book together and do spiritual shadow work together. They're all over the world now in many countries, and they're organized by time zone. And so if our listeners are interested, they can shoot me an email, conniezweig at gmail.com, put spiritual shadow work in the subject line, and send me your time zone, and I'll connect you with other people to do this work together. Because it's great to have support for this. And um, please don't send me a long story because I'm flooded with emails. But if you want a group, I would be really happy to connect you with people in your time zone. Very cool. You mentioned the Catholic Church. That's a good segue, I think. Uh, I'm sure you saw Sinead O'Connor just died, who uh, very famously and infamously ripped up a picture of the Pope uh, in the early 90s on Saturday Night Live and then had her career destroyed because of it because people didn't want to hear it, but she was telling, the, you know, pointing out the child abuse in the Catholic Church, Catholic Church, which was not widely known at that time, even though from everything I've read, it probably goes back to the beginning. You mentioned there's a line at which something, at two different points during this conversation, at one point you mentioned there's a line in which something becomes into a cult dynamic. And you also mentioned at some point that the idea is not to get people out into normative culture. But for me, it's like th those lines are blurry, perhaps. It's like, it's like what, at what point does, uh, you know, and I resolve it by never leaving the house, but you know, it's, once you start interacting with other people, it's like, at what point does it become uh, structured? And then there begins to be a systemic issue. It be begins to be cult-like, but then it's like, normative culture what also has all these dynamics going too you know I'm, I'm reminded of when katie holmes very publicly escaped scientology and said you know in the press release said you know now i'm back where i belong in the welcoming arms of the catholic church and oh, it's, and it's just know. like yeah and it's just like well okay i'm glad you're out of scientology but you know are you missing the irony here um and that's disturbing isn't it yeah, I mean it's probably I didn't better. Know that. It's probably I better than better than anything's probably better than Scientology. But yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Agree. <laughs> you know, I think I was just so I, I kept I'm still processing what you were saying about that the people in a group will put on the false mask to perpetuate the group and that therefore become kind of complicit. And that's kind of the same thing that happens in an abusive family dynamic as well. Everyone's kind of covering. And so I'm I'm not sure this is a question, but maybe just a segue to talk about broader cultural issues where it's like, you know, these things are perhaps replicated, the, can be replicated at the family level. They can be replicated at the, um, you know, cult or group level. And then it can be replicated at the cultural level where, I mean, the Catholic Church is 
you know, that that's billions of people. So, yeah. Um, you know, I think we're sort of, everyone is questioning now what is normative culture, right? I mean, there are awful lot of questions about that and we have to really have, I think, explore our own individual answers to the way that we want to participate, um, the way that we want to contribute, how we can use our own voice, you know, to affect the culture. Um, when it, the inner work of age was published, I was working with hundreds and hundreds of elders to become engaged with spiritual work, but also with activism. And so, you know, there are many ways to participate in the culture without um, joining a shadowy group. Um, but I do, I want to say something about the political culture in this context. Actually, first, let me say, there's a section in the book about patterns of abuse. And what I found as I was kind of tracking the patterns across all these denominations was that they acted just like alcoholic families. Secrets are the glue. Right. So there's a narcissistic leader who's acting out. There's the enabling behavior of the members. There's the person who's chosen and told they're special for abuse. And then there are the secrets. There's the denial and the splitting and the family persona and all the stuff that goes into the shadow. And so a lot of these groups function like alcoholic families. And that was kind of a revelation to me to, to really be able to see that. And so when does that become a cult? You know, I think that's a really important question. But what's happening now with groups in the larger culture is a kind of tribalism. And so it, when people become identified with the tribe that's a spiritual community or a religious community or the tribe that's a political party um, or a subset of a political party, um, the same dynamics are happening. There's an identification with the leader as the savior and with the beliefs that are, you know, very black and white, right and wrong beliefs and a sense of um, specialness and mission and um, closed mindedness to any other opinion or point of view. And so we've seen what this kind of tribal identity does to our culture. It's completely fractured. It's fragmented now. And um, in some ways, people like to say it was like that before Trump, and he just kind of brought it out of the closet. It's a whole, but, new, whole new level know, with him. But, sorry? It's a whole new level with him. I think. It's a whole new level yeah. of intensity and of, um, and of cultural tragedy, really. So... Um, these kind of group dynamics are have been studied. Um, people have studied, you know, sociopathic leaders 
fascist leaders throughout history. Um, and I and so I'm just saying basically that depth psychology, the study of the unconscious, has something to contribute here in terms of our understanding of leader-follower dynamics and group dynamics and our really authentic spiritual yearning and, you know, what to do with that, how to follow that and still stay safe. Got it. So I know you have to go, so let's wrap up. But maybe can you leave the listeners with kind of one thing they can do that's the way forward, whether that's a self-vigilance or... You know, just what's kind of what's the way forward in hopefully disentangling some of this stuff? Well, I think if you read the book, you'll get a sense of how to cultivate your own shadow awareness, both in you and in your projections onto other people. And as you do that, you'll be able to catch red flags more quickly and break through denial more quickly. And really test these situations to see if you can be authentic in a particular context. Can you be yourself? Can you have a voice? How, what, begin, what happens if you start to feel smaller or quieter? What is going on? Is there a sense of danger in your body? Or do you feel enlarged? Do you feel um, empowered in these situations? You know, in clinical psychology, in our training, we learn that we carry projection, just like spiritual leaders do. We carry, we call it transference. We carry both parental projection and archetypal projection. And then we learn how to give it back to the client. So I would like to see some of these teachers begin to give back the projections and empower their students. So you could ask yourself, if you're a student, do I feel empowered or disempowered? Do I feel my own spiritual authority or is it only hoarded by this Mm. leader? And listen to other people in the group Are people scared? Are they feeling controlled? Do you suspect that there are secrets going on? And, you know, really trust your own intuitions and your own resilience in your spiritual search. And if, again, if you would like to do this work with other people, shoot me an email. That's wonderful. I really like that. Great. Well, outside of the email, where can people find out more about you and your latest book and your other books? So, um, Meeting the Shadow, Romancing the Shadow, The Inner Work of Age, and Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path are on Amazon, on bondsandnoble.com, booksamillion.com, wherever you buy your books. Um, you can find out about my workshops on ConnieZweig.com. There are lots of interviews there, and um, there are lots of webinars coming up in the next couple of months if you're interested in that. Wonderful. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to to be on the show. That was a very, very informative episode. I really enjoyed it. Jason, I so enjoyed our conversation. Me and too. I really appreciate how prepared you were. Oh, thank you. Well, it was yeah. an honor. All right. Thank, thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class. And until next time, hang in there.